The flight deck is made possible by the generous donors supporting the Museum of Flight. You can support this podcast and the Museum of Flight's other initiatives across the United States and the world by visiting museumofflight.org slash podcast. Hello and welcome to The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. I'm your host, Sean Mobley. There are so many ways to interact with history. Going to a museum, reading a book, watching a documentary, and of course, playing a game. Today's episode is an interview with Jason Morningstar, the creative director and lead designer of Bully Pulpit Games, a company which publishes tabletop and live-action role-playing games. Now, these aren't video games. These are games you play in person with other people, creating a character and moving through a scenario together. Jason's game Night Witches is a game where players take on the role of Soviet women in World War II, or the Great Patriotic War, as it's known in the USSR, members of the real-life 588th Night Bomber Regiment working cooperatively to prepare for night bombing raids against the Nazis within a military framework that has little use for women, and then carrying out those bombing raids where no matter how well a player has prepared, success might still come down to the whims of the dice. Jason chatted with me about the real stories of the Night Witches that inspired the game, and the challenges of adapting something as serious as actual wartime experiences of of real people who fought and died into a game that is simultaneously fun, compelling, and respectful. So Jason, how did you come to the story of the Night Witches? That's a great question. I don't exactly know, but I do remember that I came across it uh, doing sort of related digging at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill Libraries. And they have um, some different monographs on the topic. And uh, I got really excited as soon as I found out about it and started digging right away. What brings a game designer to be looking in the archives of the North Carolina Chapel Hill Library? What are some of your (laughs) So part of it was that I worked there. So uh, I, uh, I actually went to school in the School of Information and Library Science and then got a job at the university. So I was there anyway. And I love libraries. I love research libraries. So like, that's just where I was hanging out. I was uh, there all the time. And I, I suspect that uh, it, it had to do with uh, game playing in some way that I was writing an adventure for some other game, or I I don't even remember what was going on in my life at the time. But um, clearly I was like World War II aviation, um, the the Eastern Front, what was going on, Great Patriotic War. And then uh, this just kind of showed up. And I immediately recognized that it was not only a really compelling story, but uh, the best kind of compelling story for for role-playing games, which is one that has sort of intersections uh, between uh, adventure fiction and uh, something that's very meaningful in other ways. I think uh, many members, if not all, of our library and archives team would uh, empathize with the experience of just coming in for your job and stumbling on this totally. <laughs> amazing thing. Totally, that, uh, yep. It's, yeah. a real, it's a real pleasure when that happens. 
what are some of those standout stories? Maybe let's just set the stage a little bit. Uh, what are the Night Witches? So, so uh, that was a name that was given to uh, this particular unit by their enemies in this case. So what we're talking about is the 588th uh, Night Bomber Regiment, which was one of three uh, regiments that were spun up uh, during the war that were primarily uh, staffed by women. So the 588th was an entirely female regiment. Uh, and then their two companions, the 586th and 587th, were, were mixed gender, but primarily uh, women. Um, and uh, they flew different kinds of airplanes and did different kinds of things. But uh, the, the impetus for that had been the, the uh, advocacy with Stalin by a woman named Marina Raskova, who was a, uh, an aviation superstar in the Soviet Union, who had achieved a lot of uh, remarkable things in her own career before the war. And so once, uh, once the Great Patriotic War was a thing, she went to Stalin and said, we have all these women who are pilots. Uh, we have uh, women who are interested in aviation and want to serve. Let's set it up. And uh, basically pressured him into uh, pressuring the Red Army into forming these, uh, these regiments. Uh, and they all served with uh, distinction and did very well, uh, but with uh, some considerable challenges that were unique to these formations. So uh, just to, to the, the, the cut and dry version is that I'm talking about the 588th uh, Night Bomber Regiment. They were um, flying harassment missions uh, directly behind the front lines over uh, German positions throughout the war. So psychological warfare. Pretty much. Pretty much. You mentioned Marina Ruskova. She's a pretty big figure in aviation that virtually no one in the West will have heard of. Can you share a little bit more about her? Sure. So, um, there, so there was a really interesting time in the early Soviet Union when they were still sort of um, quite progressive in many ways and sort of trying to form a truly communist identity around issues of gender and uh, politics. And there was a, a brief window when there was lots of opportunity for women to do things that were traditionally male roles in, society, in other societies. And so Raskova was a woman who really seized on that, became an aviator, and uh, created uh, you know, opportunities for other women to fly and did a lot of uh, sort of early uh, spectacular kinds of flights. So uh, she was setting records for distance uh, and altitude and speed and, and things like that uh, at a time when um, women in the West were really uh, kind of hamstrung a little bit. And certainly within the Soviet Union in the, in the late 20s and early 30s, which which was already a society that was really excited about aviation and tied aviation to technical and social progress in ways that we see in the West, but like not, not like they, they were in the Soviet Union. They were really obsessed and excited by it. So she became a, a just a really important uh, figure and people just really admired her as a celebrity and as a spokeswoman for equality and for uh, women's place in a technical society. She's someone who's been a part of our World War II exhibit since it opened, but we, we recently did a renovation and she's become even more prominent. We've got some uh, new stuff out there about her, which is exciting to see. Uh, and a couple of other women involved in aviation in the war, because as you said, it wasn't just the night witches. But what, what are some standout stories, though, that you've come across in your investigation of the real night witches? 
Sure. So, so the thing that I think is really important uh, in terms of context, like I gave you the the cut and dry version of their story, the the nuanced version of their story is that the uh, the Red Army Air Force had no use for them, um, and didn't didn't see them as anything other than sort of a political sideshow, and so they were given uh, particularly 588 were given inferior equipment and were given extraordinarily difficult assignments. So. Um, the other two regiments were, were mixed units, mixed gender units, and were flying in, in different uh, capacities. But the 588th, as a strictly night harassment unit, was given really old airplanes. Uh, they were given 1920s, essentially agricultural uh, and training airplanes, uh, Polycarpov um, PO2s, which were later Polycarpov U2s, uh, uh, really uh, uh, underpowered uh, biplanes, fabric and wood uh, construction airplanes. Um, they were slow um, and uh, they couldn't carry much. And so uh, these women were dropping, you know, 100 kilogram bombs or a pair of 100 kilo bombs uh, and uh, flying over positions where they were encountering, you know, vicious anti-aircraft fire uh, or interdiction by a German uh, uh, fighter aircraft uh, that they were just completely incapable of countering. So like it, it was danger, dangerous work uh, and they were uh, in really untenable circumstances to begin with. Uh, so, so that's a thing to, to keep in mind. Um, one of the things that uh, the 588 did, these, uh, these planes, uh, they shipped with a, 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 a machine gun. There was a, a pintle mounted machine gun on the back of these planes and they immediately took them off so they had more weight to carry ordnance. When they ran out of ordnance, because of course they were chronically undersupplied because the Red Army Air Force didn't love them, they would drop railroad ties. You know, they, they just, uh, they were flying every night. They were uh, from, from uh, improvised airfields directly behind the front lines. So there would be 10 or a dozen sorties a night where they were just uh, flying over, uh, harassing these uh, German positions and then flying back. Um, really dangerous uh, flying and uh, required a lot of skill because they're flying at night with no navigation instruments, uh, you know, other than dead reckoning and uh, no uh, radios. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Uh, there were some advantages to that. Uh, like, take what you can get, I guess. One of the advantages of the U2 or PO2 platform was that it was incredibly slow. It, its uh, maximum speed is below the stall speed of many of the German fighters that were uh, after them. So uh, the fact that they uh, were uh, so slow was sometimes an advantage. And also they were essentially invisible to radar because they were fabric and, uh, and wood. So you took this and turned it into a role-playing game. Now, when people think of role-playing games, they think of Dungeons and Dragons. So, sure, so yeah. is Night Witches like D&D? How does it compare? How, yeah, that's yeah. a bad question. No, it's not. How is, it, how is it, it different? Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's a, it's a very reasonable question. So um, the idea behind any role-playing game is that you, uh, you take on the role of a character in a particular situation, usually a situation that's uh, fraught with danger and excitement. And of course, in Dungeons and Dragons, it's a fantasy world where there are dragons and there are dungeons and, you know, that's the danger and the excitement. And that's very fun. And that's one kind of game, right? Which is just a little different because uh, you're, 
exploring history a little bit, uh, real history. And while the game itself, I, I don't, uh, I don't claim that it's a it's a perfect model of history. And in fact, I changed um, very minor things uh, to make it easier to play. And I can give you examples of that. Um, so, like, I, I when I designed the game, I wasn't thinking I want to perfectly emulate the historical moment. What I was thinking is I want to provide uh, a really engaging uh, experience of play, and I want to give people an opportunity to really appreciate and empathize with the circumstances that these women found themselves in. Uh, and I think I've achieved that. Uh, so it's different from a, a, a traditional role-playing game where there's uh, maybe there's fantasy involved or uh, 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 it's, it's the setting is wide open to make of what you will in, in this game, uh, you follow the progression of the war. So you move from duty station to duty station and circumstances change over the course of play at the beginning of the game, you're sort of untested, uh, and, uh, the, the fighting is sort of, uh, you know, along the Don river and then in the Crimea, uh, the Taman peninsula. And, uh, by the end of the game, uh, you're on the edge of Berlin. Uh, you're, you're actually operating from uh, an airbase in Germany, uh, and the war's almost over, and the game ends when the war ends. So, uh, so that's different, uh, and uh, it's you know like uh, it's a, it's a serious game, right? It's not uh, there, there's a there's some terminology in in the world of games where we talk about type one and type two fun. And type one is wahoo, you know, like anything goes, let's have a great time. And type two is, wow, we did that thing. And it was, uh, it was intense, but really enjoyable. And Night Witches is type two fun, for sure. So you're there at the end of a session with your friends or the other players. And, and you really, after playing, feel like an emotional connection. It, it builds, it builds that kind of environment with each other and with the characters, as opposed to like a, Whoa, what a wild ride. Right. Yeah, very much so. And you, you really learn to care about these women because it's it's incredibly dangerous. And the game is it's designed to emulate that. So every time you fly, uh, there's a, a reasonable chance that somebody's not coming home. Uh, and that's part of the experience of play, too. How do you find that balance? You know, this is a game about a pretty serious topic. How do you keep it from being overwhelming for a player so that they're like, I don't want to spend my free time right. diving into this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. And uh, there are, it's, it's a pretty common question. People will be like, well, that seems really intense or that seems really difficult. You know, I'd rather shoot werewolves or, you know, whatever. And uh, I get it. And, and I think that's fine. Uh, there's a place for that. And if that's where you're at, that's good. Uh, but there's something really meaningful, I think, about uh, engaging with and exploring real history uh, and trying to sort of get your head around the lived experience of of people who did incredible things in a way that's both respectful uh, and you know reasonably accurate to their actual experience, but it also allows you to really immerse yourself and and empathize in a pretty deep way with with uh, with that experience. And I think that Night Witches and other games like it can provide that. A criticism of especially a lot of early role-playing games this is a lot of like male power fantasies how has that changed over time uh, to be more inclusive and and how do you see the night witches as fitting into kind of the gaming sphere as as making it a, a more inclusive 
game, a more inclusive place for people to explore different kinds of stories? Yeah, oh, that's a great question. And I think it's true that the roots of the hobby are in wargaming, which is sort of traditionally masculine and it's kind of dominated by male voices and uh, male ideas. And and obviously I, I approach this from a masculine and, and male point of view, but the topic itself is, it's I mean, it's a feminist game, basically. Uh, you're looking at the experience of women at the intersection of wartime and endemic sexism, right? Uh, the, the people that are supporting them, supplying them, uh, they don't want them to succeed, and so you're you're uh, in in the game. Yeah, every night you're, you're bombing the Nazis, but every day you're fighting against the Red Army Air Force, which has no interest in your success. Uh, so, and, and by far, that's the more interesting part of the game, uh, and it's designed that way. So the the night missions uh, take less time than just trying to interact during the day to to make sure that you're prepared for the, the missions each night, because that's way more interesting. Uh, in terms of like how how it fits into a, a changing game landscape, you know, I think it's in conversation with other games that that uh, also recognize that, uh, you know, we can look further than uh, dudes with swords uh, in terms of uh, what, what entertainment can mean and what uh, the experience of play can provide. I'm thinking right now of uh, uh, another game that you didn't work on that's that's up and coming you've probably heard of it of coyote and crow mm-hmm. which is uh recently uh very successful on kickstarter a role-playing game set in an alternate north american continent where europeans never arrived and it's it's written entirely by a team of indigenous native american first nations people and my first thought was oh wow that sounds amazing and my second thought was oh there's no way i could play that and then the third thought when I read it was, oh, these are people who are making a game for their community first and foremost. But second, like right up there with it, they want non-native people to play it. They want the uh, us to engage with it and they want to give us tools to do that uh, because they see it as a way of helping. Yeah, absolutely. helping us have a much more uh, empathy and understanding of of the world that they, that they live in through it's 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 got some sci fi angles, too. It's It's not. It's an alternate universe, so it's it's, uh, but yeah, it's it's cool to see that continuing to grow. Well, yeah, and the idea of um, you know welcoming people into uh, uh, maybe an uncomfortable space, I think, is super valuable. I know that the Coyote and Crow team are very deliberate about that and addressing the discomfort that someone like you or myself would have approaching that material, uh, for sure. And I think that that's that's good. One of the things that I I kind of love about Night Witches is that. Um, Sometimes there are people who would never, you know, they, they're excited about the adventure of it or, or the World War II-ishness of it. And they're excited about bombing the Nazis. And if that's what gets them into the chair to, to play a game where they're playing a, a woman in a very difficult situation uh, where they're surrounded by sexism and discrimination and all these other tensions, that's awesome. I'm really happy about that. And I want them to be there. So, you know, a little column A, a little column B, it's going gonna, it's gonna to work out. We've talked before on this podcast extensively about the Women's Air Force Service Pilots, the WASP, which are not equivalent, but uh, it's it's a program in the U.S. Uh, mm-hmm. where women were flying. Very, very different program. But for, for listeners who want some other stories kind of from the U.S. perspective, I'll make sure to include some links in the show notes uh, to those. But but you, you talked a bit about 
the disconnecting players to the real history how how do you see that happening how do you have any stories that that you've come across of players having that happen or or what are some specific game elements that you designed with the intent of really trying to get people to connect with the real history oh yeah absolutely so so the game is set up to first of all there's no expectation that you know anything about the era or uh, the great patriotic war or really the soviet union or any any of this these monumental uh, things uh, in order to play and enjoy the game you, you don't have to approach it as an expert and in fact approaching it as an expert kind of sucks some of the fun out of it oh, because the game's going to provide you with everything you need um, in terms of uh, uh, anchoring you in history as you move from duty station to duty station over the course of play you get information not only about uh, the local area and the, the state of the war but also issues related to the unit itself and its supply situation. And and all of this stuff is there to help you sort of breathe life into the setting. Your your characters also have backgrounds that, that uh, provide that kind of information. And there's tons of resources in the game to support you in making it seem real without having to be an expert at the beginning. I guarantee that if you, if you play a complete campaign of Night Witches, at the end of it, you're going to have a pretty clear idea of lots of these moving parts, right? You can understand the role of the, the regimental politruck reporting to the NKVD. You're going to have uh, an understanding of these planes and their limitations uh, and the sort of the hardships these women suffered. Uh, all of that's going to become crystal clear over time. And the game provides those things gradually and uh, incrementally for you. So, so the systems of play really do help uh, support uh, the players in that way. You talked earlier about some of the standout stories from the the real night witches i'm curious if you have any standout stories from your playthroughs in the game or maybe that you've heard from people who've played through it oh so many stories uh yeah yeah lots of lots of really fun uh interesting moments in play often around the 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 game is kind of set up as a hard choice generator like it it presents these decisions that you have to make that are often impossible um and uh, that's where the real fun of it is. Uh, a recent uh, example of that uh, from uh, a game that I, I uh, heard about was um, uh, somebody was, uh, they were in trouble. They, they had, uh, I don't even remember what they did. They'd done something that was not appropriate. And their uh, regimental politruck, the representative of the NKVD, the, the Soviet military secret police, uh, wanted to talk to him about it. And everybody knew that that interview was not going to go well, uh, that it was going to be a big problem. And it also was going to suck up all their time. Like that's what they were going to do instead of, instead of sleeping or securing spare parts or preparing for the next mission, they were going to be getting shaken down and interrogated. And so uh, this player, uh, they, they had their character go to the, the courier the, the courier in, in the regiment who was in charge of delivering these messages back and forth between the truck and the individual uh, uh, flight wings and said, hey, listen, I know that you're going to have a letter for me today. And I know that that letter is going to tell me to report to the truck in the morning. And I w- want you to misplace it just for a day. Drop it in the mud, drop it behind it, uh, you know, a, a desk 
All I need is one day. And I know that after that, they're going to find me and it's going to be bad, but I need this time. And it was such a cool moment. Not only because there was tension as to whether the courier was going to, uh, you know, accept that proposition and recognize that it was for the, the benefit of the unit that they do this thing, that they essentially commit a crime. Um, but also that the, the player was like, I want my air woman to, to succeed on this mission so badly that I'm willing to really jeopardize all this other stuff to make it happen, even knowing that I'm fundamentally doomed. You know, that when I do finally have to sit down with the NKVD, I'm probably going to get arrested. Uh, it was just a great moment. It was really cool. And stuff like that happens all the time in, in play. Do you have any other games that you're working on right now that might be of interest to someone in aviation? Well, obviously, I'm interested in aviation generally. And, and my big project right now is a game called Early Birds, which is about the dawn of powered aviation. So it takes place between 1908 and 1914, and you play uh, pilots who are uh, forming teams and uh, essentially learning as you go about how to fly airplanes, which is really fun. And it's also uh, based in history in the same way that Night Witches is, but a really different moment in history that is really bonkers in so many fun ways. In our World War I and our World War II exhibits, we have this collection of models that somebody made in in his free time, and it's doesn't i mean i i don't know like i say hundreds it might be not might, might not be more than 200 i don't know off the top of my head but the world war one collection i especially like because you look at these planes and you're like they were just slapping things on things to see what happens and yep, uh, that, that is absolutely true and, and you get that spirit yep and those yeah. uh, the, the the stories of sort of discovery there are just amazing they just didn't really i mean in some ways there was a really solid understanding of of the principles of flight and in other ways they were just making it up as they went along and it's and the interplay of those two is fascinating yeah and we've talked a lot about early aviation again on the podcast here but one of the things that we have in our collection we haven't done an episode on maybe it's something to do in the future is a mural called the early birds which was commissioned uh i'm gonna get some of the history wrong here i think in the 60s or 70s uh, but it's a mural of all of the members of this group called Early Birds Inc., I think, mm -hmm. which was a membership group of people who had flown before a certain date. And and one of the interesting pieces of it, it's a it's a very interesting mural. It looks like a kind of Great Depression era piece. Um, but something that your game is working on is the fact that it was only members of this group <laughs> that were called the early birds but it left out a lot of people who were also flying who did not gain who were not allowed to join this group called the early birds yeah it's it's, it's been interesting doing a deep dive into the history and sort of trying to suss out the places where uh things were just kind of erased or written out and there were tons of women who were flying there were people of color who were flying uh people flying all over the world and this is you know 1911 1912 uh that just they were omitted and it's fascinating to try to bring them back into the conversation because they, they they weren't completely omitted you know there are these tangential references that kind of end up forming a composite that allows you to understand that oh yeah the first guy to fly in central pennsylvania uh yeah he was a he was a, a american black man and uh, that's awesome uh, and that's history emery malik is his name and you know, nobody 
is talking about Emery Malik right now. But let's change that. Well, I don't want to go too far down a whole nother path for what could be a whole nother episode. Yeah, really. <laughs> to have you back to talk about that later. Oh, I'd love to. Oh, this has been great. I would just encourage uh, your listeners if you're um, if you're an aviation enthusiast, but you're not really a game person yet, give it a try. You know, uh, role playing games are really fun, uh, and the barrier to entry is very low, and uh, it's a it's a good time. Uh, it can be a very fun uh, experience. So I just want to encourage your listeners to be open to that experience. Uh, if nothing else. It's a, it's a good chance to engage with history in a way that you haven't before, most likely. Absolutely. Well, Jason, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, my pleasure. This has been really fun. Thank you for tuning into this episode of The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. Thank you especially to our donors, those who have been able to support the podcast financially. You've made this program possible. If you'd like to become a donor, follow the link in this episode's show notes, or head to museumofflight.org slash podcast and click the yellow donate button. Part of this interview was excerpted in the most recent issue of Aloft, the Museum of Flight's membership magazine. If you're tuning in from reading the excerpt in a loft. Welcome. I hope you enjoy what you heard and, and liked hearing the rest of the interview, and I hope you stick around. There's a lot of other good content on this podcast. If you're not a museum member, you can learn about Aloft, free admissions, member previews, and other benefits of membership at museumofflight.org slash membership. You can learn more about the Night Witches game and Jason's other work at bullypulpitgames.com, and I'll include a link to that in our show notes. Here at the museum, we've recently expanded our exhibitry around the Night Witches and other Soviet women who participated in aviation during World War II as part of a larger refresh of our World War II gallery, which opened at the end of 2020. Next time you visit, take some time to look through the Soviet section and while you're there, make sure you look at what's painted on the nose of the Yakovlev Yak-9 Russian aircraft in that section. It's a wonderful little detail that a lot of people miss. And for those playing the home game, I'll include a link to our Yak-9's profile, which does include photos in the show notes. And before you visit the museum, make sure you head to museumofflight.org to reserve your ticket and get the most up-to-date visitor information. As of this recording, we're still under altered operations in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. So just take a second, check the website before you come so that you have the most up-to-date information. A quick shameless plug, I'll be presenting a live-streamed public program for the museum next week, at least if you're listening when this episode is released, on Wednesday, June 16th at 6 o'clock p.m. Pacific Time, if you'd like to hear me live. The program, called Something to Prove, Spotlighting Gender and Sexual Minority Stories in World War II Aviation, follows the stories of four World War II veterans who all served the American aviation effort during the war in different capacities, who are all also LGBT, and use their experience to connect to a wider history that will probably make you rethink everything you thought you knew about the American experience in World War II. And that's not a claim I make lightly. I know it's very dramatic, but but this stuff really is that eye-opening. I hope you can come. 
the link to the live stream will be in the show notes and the program will be saved to our YouTube channel if you want to catch it afterwards. If you like what you heard, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you downloaded us from. You can contact the show at podcast at museumoflight.org. Until next time, this is your host, Sean Mobley, saying to everyone out there on that good earth, see you out there, folks. <laughs>